You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is Lecture 8 of the Lecture Cycle by Rudolf Steiner, According to Matthew, the Gospel of Christ's Humanity. We said yesterday that the Christ event drew both drew let me say that again. We said yesterday that the Christ event drew both aspects of initiation into the arena of world history. For our purposes, this is the essential meaning of Christ's appearance on earth. All mystery schools based on Egyptian religious culture developed initiation rites that transformed the daily experience of awakening, focusing it on the body's physical and etheric processes instead of outer phenomena. In ancient rites, candidates received guidance and help in overcoming the inherent dangers of initiation, and they were transformed inasmuch as they learned to observe the spiritual world especially the forces and beings connected with the human physical and etheric bodies. Yesterday we learned that Essene initiation involved 42 stages that led to more exact knowledge of one's true inner nature and I, capital. The Essenes also acquired a better understanding of the inherited organs of perception specifically developed for this purpose. These 42 sages guided initiates upward to Yahweh, the divine spirit who caused the development of the organ first acquired by Abraham, which was an important characteristic of that time. Essene initiates thus look back on the internal human structure that Yahweh produced, and their initiation thus focused on understanding the inner nature of the human being. I have described in general terms the dangers facing those who enter their own inner nature without adequate preparation. To begin with, all sorts of egoistic tendencies are aroused. All of the aspirants, actions, senses, and feelings become egoistic because he or she has chosen to unite only with self-directed forces, passions, and emotions which do not acknowledge the spiritual world. Even today we are confronted by those particular illusions and we risk becoming extremely egoistic when we attempt initiation by descending into our own inner nature. Esoteric development provides an opportunity for all kinds of self-centered tendencies to arise, which we usually do not recognize since we prefer to believe they are anything but egoism. Although it has been explained many times, that the path to higher worlds is strewn with obstacles, many aspirants today want to avoid these hindrances. They wish to perceive higher worlds, but do not want to experience what is required to attain that perception. They are uncomfortable when the the demons intrinsic to human nature appear. They would much rather rise into higher worlds without needing to experience the manifestations of egoism. They fail to notice that the desire... To avoid this necessary process is the most significant and severe form of egoism. They ought to realize that invoking such forces is an unavoidable part of being human. 
Nevertheless, even though they have been told hundreds and hundreds of times that we must expect obstacles at a certain point in our inner development, they are surprised to discover that these hindrances really do exist. All this is merely to point out the illusions and deceptions to which certain individuals succumb. We must also realize that people today have grown lazy in a certain sense and would prefer to follow the path to higher worlds with all the ease and comfort of ordinary life, but this is impossible. The ancient way of initiation into inner human nature led to the spiritual world because divine spiritual forces create and work in our physical and etheric bodies. Initiates who were guided into the spiritual world through their own inner nature learned to witness the secrets of that world, which they were then able to communicate to others. After returning from the spiritual world, however, they realized that they had been able to observe spiritual existence only because they received help. The support of helpers enabled them to survive when their own inner demons would have overwhelmed them. Throughout their lifetime they remained dependent on a circle of helpers, In other words, the forces that helped them attain initiation accompanied them into the world. This situation had to change and be transcended. Nevertheless, dependence on teachers and initiators had to decrease because another factor was associated with this need for help. While awake, we generally have a clear sense of our personal I, being, which awakens at a specific point early in life. Many of my lectures, as well as my book Theosophy, describe that time when we begin to address ourselves as I. Parenthesis, animals lack this capacity. If an animal could enter its inner life as humans do, it would discover a species self, or group I, rather than an individual I. In other words, it would have the sense of being belonging to a whole group. End of parenthesis. During ancient rites of initiation, the sense of individual self was in a certain respect extinguished. As aspirants ascended to spiritual worlds, their sense of selfhood was clouded. This was fortunate, as you will realize, if you recall that egoism and passions tend to separate us from the outer world since they are linked to our sense of I-being. Ancient initiations took place in a state approaching dream consciousness, in order to downplay the passions and emotions and thus suppress the aspirant's sense of selfhood. Increasingly, however, we are meant to experience initiation while awake and fully aware of the eye. The clouding of the eye during initiation in the ancient mysteries cannot continue. Of course, this change must be accomplished slowly and gradually, but even today genuine initiation processes preserve the candidate's sense of self while they ascend to higher worlds. Let's consider one ancient form of initiation in greater detail. The pre-Christian Essene initiation, like all initiation rites of its time, involved a reduced awareness of one's eye. Hence, anything that contributes to the sense of selfhood in earthly existence also had to be suppressed, especially outwardly directed perception. The most trivial example from everyday life proves that we lack eye-consciousness while asleep, when we live in the spiritual world. In our time, the eye is usually unaware of this other world. Self-awareness exists only during the day, when our attention is distracted from the spiritual world and focuses and focused more on the physical world. 
This is true of people today, and it was true at the time of Christ. In Christian initiation, however, the eye must remain awake in higher worlds, just as it does in our ordinary world. A more exact understanding of the moment of awakening from sleep will help us characterize this initiation process. On waking, we emerge from a higher world into our physical and etheric bodies, but we remain unaware of their inner processes because our perception is diverted into our surroundings. The ancient Hebrew mystery teachings used the term Malkut, kingdom, to describe everything we survey in the moment of waking, whether perceived physically with our eyes or ears or understood with our brain-bound reason. In ancient Hebrew, the quote-unquote kingdom included everything taken in by human eye consciousness. This is the most precise definition of the term Malkut, the world of the senses, the world of the waking state in which the eye is fully maintained. <clears throat> now let's consider the stages of the type of initiation that descends into human inner nature. It is easy to guess the first stage before entering the etheric body and perceiving its secrets. We know that the outer garments of the human being are the astral, etheric, and physical bodies. The inner astral body is the gate to the lower bodies. In this type of initiation, we must com consciously experience the astral body from within before descending into the physical and etheric bodies. We experience the interiors of these three bodies objectively, just as we do external objects. In the ancient Hebrew language, the kingdom included the objects of the sensory world. Today we are more precise and distinguish three kingdoms, mineral, plant, and animal, which the ancient Hebrews saw as a single kingdom. In the sensory world, where the eye can be fully present, we distinguish animals, plants, and minerals, but when we descend into our own nature, we perceive with a different faculty. This is because the eye finds itself in the world to which our astral organs link us. In this case, we do not perceive through the eye. Instead, the eye uses the tools of the astral body. Ancient Hebrew usage has three different terms for what we see in this situation. In the sensory world, we distinguish an animal kingdom, a plant kingdom, and a mineral kingdom. Similarly, within the realm that we survey in the astral body, the ancient Hebrews distinguished Netzach, Yesod, and Hod. I'll spell those. Netzach is N-E-T-Z-A-C-H. Netzach and Yesod, Y-E-S-O-D, Yesod, and Hod, H-O-D, Hod. The ordinary dictionary translations are no help at all here. To translate the nuances of these three terms more exactly, we must immerse ourselves in the ancient Hebrew feeling for language. For example, the sequence of sounds forming the word hod means, quote, something spiritual that manifests externally working toward the outside on the astral level, unquote. Netzach denotes a denser, more substantial form of this will that manifests outwardly. We might call it, quote, impenetrable, unquote. According to modern physics texts, Physical objects are impenetrable, and impenetrability is considered a property of matter. Logically, however, it should be formulated as a definition of matter. A material object is an entity whose place cannot be occupied simultaneously by another material object. 
The simple concept that two bodies cannot occupy the same space at the same time really belongs in the domain of philosophy, but physics makes a dogma of it by stating that, quote, the objects of the physical world possess the property of impenetrability, unquote. In any case, Netzach means anything that manifests in space in a way that excludes anything else. In other words, Netzach is a denser form of Hod. Yeshod, excuse me, Yeshod falls between these two concepts. To summarize, Hod, the first of these three nuances, is the outward manifestation of an astral phenomenon. Once this phenomenon condenses to the point of physical impenetrability, ancient Hebrew would use the word Netzach. Yesod denotes the intermediate situation. These three words describe three attributes of beings in the astral world. Let's continue exploring initiation into human inner nature. After passing through the astral body, an aspirant enters the ether body. The experience at this level is higher than anything described by these three Hebrew words. Why higher, you may ask? In fact, in the outer world, as we confront it, the highest spiritual forces work on the seemingly lowest manifestations. This phenomenon, which I have often mentioned in discussing the human constitution, must be taken into account if we want to understand the world's true inner structure. As we know, the human being consists of the physical body, the etheric body, the astral body, and the eye. The eye is certainly the highest member of the human constitution in certain respects, but it also remains the baby among the four. It has the greatest potential for development and evolution, but actually exists at the lowest level. In contrast, the physical body as such is the most highly perfected member, though this perfection has come about not through human effort, but from the work of divine spiritual beings during the Saturn Sun and Moon periods. Even the astral body is at a higher level of perfection than the human eye. <coughs> Let's begin by considering the eye. It is obvious and close at hand, and we identify with it. To discover it, we can simply look into our own nature, as long as we are not too trivial and narrow-minded. In contrast, we have a long way to go before we can understand the secrets of the human physical body, whose structure evolved over millions and millions of years through the work of divine spirits. The astral and etheric bodies lie between the physical body and the eye. Compared to the physical body, the astral body, with its emotions, passions, desires, and so forth, is also a less perfected member of the human constitution. Many of our astral emotions directly attack the miraculous structure of the physical body. Some, for example, are toxic to the heart. I have explained elsewhere that our health would soon be undermined if it depended only on the astral body. We owe our health entirely to the fact that the structure of the human heart has evolved to the degree that it can withstand decades of attack by the astral body. As we descend deeper, we discover that higher spiritual forces have worked on other members of the human constitution. We might say that the youngest divine spiritual forces gave us the eye, whereas much more ancient gods perfected our lower members to such an extent that we can barely understand them today, let alone imitate or recreate their miraculous structure with the tools at our disposal. 
This perfection was especially evident to the Essene initiates. They knew that after the first fourteen stages they would enter the astral body where they would encounter their astral passions and emotions, the negative aspects of the astral body that result from a specific incarnation. The Essenes also knew that the etheric body revealed after the next fourteen stages was purer, more godlike, and therefore less susceptible to human intervention and damage. Initiates who withstood the astral body's attacks knew that after the first fourteen stages they had already overcome the most difficult obstacles and were about to enter the illuminated and less susceptible spheres of the etheric body. Ancient Hebrew mystery teachings also had three terms for what initiates encountered in the etheric body. Again, these terms Gedula, Tiferet, and Givura are extremely difficult to translate into modern language, but let's try to define their scope. The first, Gedula, G-E-D-U-L-A-H, Gedula, or greatness, conveys an impression of the spiritual world's overwhelming grandeur and majesty. Gevura, G-E-V-U-R-A-H, Gevura, strength, is related to Gedula, but describes a different nuance, grandeur diminished by activity. Givura is the splendor of the force that manifests outwardly as an independent being and offers resistance. Gedula is associated with activity that works in inner purity through the inner being, whereas Gebura is associated with aggressive outward-directed activity. Tiferet, T-I-F-E-R-E-T, Tiferet, beauty, denotes the autonomous grandeur of inwardness that manifests outwardly, but it simply expresses spiritual greatness rather than aggressiveness. To understand what the word Tiferet implies, we need to unite our concepts of goodness and beauty. We perceive a being as beautiful when its inner qualities are revealed by its outer form, and as good when its outer form expresses inner purity. In ancient Hebrew mysteries, these two concepts were united in the term Tiferet. By descending into the etheric body, initiates established a relationship with beings expressing these three attributes. The next stage is descent into the physical body, where we encounter the oldest of the divine spirits that have worked on the human constitution. From accounts in cosmic memory and an outline of esoteric science, you may recall how the physical body first began to develop on old Saturn. The exalted spiritual beings known as the thrones sacrificed the substance of their own will to endow the beginnings of the human physical body. Other exalted spirit beings worked further on the developing human body during the Saturn, Sun, and Moon periods until its present miraculous structure emerged, allowing it to be inhabited by the other three members of the human constitution, etheric body, astral body, and I. I described this evolution in my lectures in Munich on the six days of creation. (coughs) Initiates who descended completely into their inner nature perceived beings, with attributes related to the soul's highest achievements with regard to wisdom. We aspire to the ideal of wisdom and we feel our inner essence rise as it fills with wisdom. Initiates descended into the physical body, encountered, excuse me, 
initiates descending into the physical body encountered beings composed entirely of wisdom. As human beings, we can acquire this substance only to a very limited extent. We do this by striving not for ordinary knowledge, which we can acquire in one incarnation, but for knowledge that we can attain only partially and through many incarnations of arduous soul experience. We acquire wisdom in its fullness only when we have fully explored its manifold expressions. In the physical body, initiates perceived beings that manifest primarily through tremendous purity of wisdom. The ancient Hebrew mysteries called this quality chokmah, C-H-O-K-M-A-H, chokmah, which is translated fairly accurately as wisdom today. Just as human wisdom has a condensed form, there is a denser form of this attribute which we can also achieve only to a very limited extent. During initiation into the physical body, we discover other beings that manifest exclusively through a coarser nuance of wisdom, or what we call reason in humans. We acquire reason to a very limited degree, but when we hear the term bina, B-I-N-A-H, bina, a coarser level of chokma, we should think of beings completely imbued with the fruits of reason. Hence the ancient Hebrew mysteries use the word chokma when referring to the creative wisdom that gives birth within itself to the mysteries of the world. They compare it to a stream of water, whereas the coarser bina is compared to an ocean. The term kether, K-E-T-H-E-R, kether denotes the most exalted discovery during descent into the physical body. It is almost impossible to find words to translate this term. At best, we can point to the symbol of a human characteristic that suggests the qualities of exalted spirits. We will translate kether as crown, since a crown symbolizes the elevation of a human being beyond individual limitations, endowing its wearer with significance that transcends the personage. This completes the palette of attributes of beings inhabiting the realm we grow into as we descend into our inner nature. Quote-unquote, grow into is truly the right expression. We can imagine a scene initiation as a process that led initiates through a series of concrete encounters with these attributes. But what distinguished a scene initiation from the type of initiation practiced by neighboring peoples, What were its unique features? All ancient initiation rites attempted to suppress and even extinguish the sense of I that we normally have while surveying Malkut, the kingdom. Consequently, during initiation into the spiritual world, candidates could not exist as human beings in the way people exist in the outer physical world of the kingdom. Ancient initiation rites clearly separated the experience of initiation from the sense of being in an I. The ancient mystery schools might have briefly described initiation to ordinary people by saying, quote, Do not think you can strive toward initiation while maintaining the usual sense of self that you experience in Malkuth, or the kingdom. You will grow into great experiences of the truth of the, quote, three times three, unquote, attributes. But you must shed the self you experience in the outer world. You cannot return to the kingdom with your experiences of Netzach 
Yesod and Hod and so on, they are incompatible with your ordinary human awareness of the individual I. This was the general view of ancient initiation, and anyone who contradicted it would have been considered a crazy fool and a liar. The Essenes, however, <clears throat> were the first to teach that in times to come these exalted attributes will descend so that human beings can experience them while preserving awareness of the eye. This is what the Greeks later called Basileia Tom Oranon, the kingdom of heaven. The Essenes were the first to proclaim the coming of one who would make the contents of the kingdoms of heaven accessible to the eye that lives in Malkuth, the kingdom. Jeshu ben Pandira, who was inspired by the successor of Gautama Buddha, the Bodhisattva who will become Maitreya Buddha, was the first to transmit this doctrine to the Essenes and a few of their neighbors. A cogent summary of his teachings, as compiled by his pupil Mathai, might put it like this. The kingdoms of heaven would be unable to descend into Malkuth, the earthly kingdom, until three times fourteen generations had elapsed. At that point an individual will be born into the tribe of Abraham and David called the tribe of Jesse, the Jessenes or Essenes. He will descend bearing the nine attributes of the kingdoms of heaven into the kingdom in which the eye dwells. Let me read that sentence again. He will descend, bearing the nine attributes of the kingdoms of heaven into the kingdom in which the eye dwells. Because of these teachings, Jeshu ben Pandira was stoned to death for blasphemy. He was accused of blaspheming initiation by those who refused to understand that what is right and good at one time may not remain so as humankind progresses. The time was fulfilled as predicted, however, and the three times fourteen generations were accomplished. The Hebrew bloodline did indeed produce the physical vehicle for Zarathustra, who further developed it with faculties acquired in the body of the Nathanic Jesus, and then offered it as the vehicle for the Christ. As the Christ's forerunner had proclaimed, the time had come when the, quote, kingdoms of heaven, unquote, would draw close to the eye that lived in the outer kingdom of Malkuth. Now we can understand the Christ's next task after the temptation in the desert. He had resisted temptation through his own inner strength, or what we call the I in human beings today. The Christ overcame all the attacks and temptations that confront those who try to descend into the astral, etheric, and physical bodies. Matthew's clear descriptions make us keenly aware of these temptations or aspects of egoism. When aspirants to esoteric development descend into their own nature, they naturally encounter a significant obstacle, the bad habit of excessive attachment to one's own beloved personality. This habit is especially prevalent among those who attempt to enter the spiritual world. Such people love to talk about their personalities, constantly attending to them and observing them in minute detail. Ordinarily, most people just go doggedly about their lives, but people who are beginning to aspire to inner development or who simply become anthroposophists tend to become incredibly involved with the personal I. As a result, they are beset on all sides by illusions, which the simple resolve to live one's life would normally override. Why does this happen? People are unable to cope 
with the emotions that arise from within to unite with the personal I. Even in people who are once alert and easily drawn to the outer world, all kinds of unexpected emotions arise as a result of their increased focus on the inner life and the desire to become a true individuality, independent of the outer world. Admittedly, during the earliest stages of inner development, people generally enjoy being treated like children and having someone tell them exactly what to do. They have all kinds of wishes and wants, but conspicuously absent is the desire to provide their own direction and goals based on the fruits of their esoteric life. They are not yet accustomed to thinking in these terms. The most profound disturbances occur when people really want to be independent and pay attention to their personal egos. Under such circumstances, it is truly annoying to be reminded that we are connected to our surroundings simply because the body needs to eat. This awkward situation shows how much our survival depends upon our environment. Like a finger severed from a hand, we cannot survive on our own. When our sense of self is enhanced to the maximum, the desire to become independent of the world may become so strong that we would prefer to eliminate all the ordinary physical needs that make us feel so dependent on our environment. We would like to be able to summon up the means to satisfy those needs from within ourselves. In fact, this desire does appear in aspiring initiates. They begin to hate their dependence on the world and the fact that they cannot simply conjure food out of nothing. This extreme example sounds absurd, but it does appear, although not on the conscious level, in many who attempt inner development. Because people remain attached to outer habits, they do not completely surrender to the fantasy of magically creating physical sustenance and living free of the outer kingdom of Malkuth. Nonetheless, this desire remains present. Taking it to the extreme, we might believe that if we succeeded in living in the astral body and the eye so that we could accommodate all our own wishes, we would no longer need the outer world at all. This temptation is quite real. The Christ was subjected to its greatest possible manifestation when the tempter approached him and told him to turn stones into bread. Matthew 4, 1-11 gives a wonderful description of this supreme temptation during the descent into human nature. The second stage of initiation occurs after the descent into the astral body and after confronting the emotions and passions that can turn us into paradoxical egoists. If we confront the second stage without the protection gained by overcoming the initial astral dangers, we descend abruptly into the etheric and physical bodies which we cannot corrupt to the same extent as the astral body. This experience can be likened to falling into an abyss, as described in Matthew. The Christ was fully aware that the second stage of initiation should not be attempted without first overcoming one's passions and emotions. Thus he answered the tempter, quote, You shall not tempt the being to whom you yourself should submit. Unquote, Matthew 4, 7. <clears throat> Descent into the physical body is the third stage. Its characteristic temptation inevitably occurs when we see the physical and etheric bodies from within. At this stage, we perceive the domain of the three highest attributes as a world that exists only in our illusions. We cannot perceive its inherent truth unless we pass through the physical body and ascend to the level of spiritual beings. 
Those beings no longer occupy physical bodies themselves, but merely work within ours. Until we escape from egoism, Lucifer, the tempter of the physical world, will continue to deceive us about ourselves. He promises us everything we encounter in the world, but it is no more than a product of our own illusion. As long as we remain in the grip of us, the spirit of egoism, we perceive a world of lies and illusions. We must not believe that this is a world of truth. Until we extricate ourselves from it, we remain caught in maya. The Christ being modeled these three levels of temptation for humankind by giving an example of initiation that took place outside the ancient mystery centers and through the strength of an individual clothed in the three human bodies. This unique example provided the impetus for future human beings to overcome the separation between the kingdoms of heaven and the kingdom of Malkuth, thus ascending into the spiritual world with the eye that lives in Malkuth. This possibility was achieved on behalf of humankind when the Christ overcame the temptations described in Matthew. A being living on earth provided a model of how to carry the eye of Malkuth into higher kingdoms and higher worlds. What did the Christ accomplish through his outer historical enactment of an event that had formerly been veiled in the mysteries? In Matthew's account, the temptation is followed by Christ's discourse on achieving the kingdom of heaven, that is, learning to experience the spiritual world without first having to suppress the I. In the events described after the temptation, the Christ reveals the mystery of how the I ascends into spiritual worlds according to the mode of life in the outer kingdom. The chapters, beginning with the Sermon on the Mount, present the Christ's view of the kingdom, or Malkuth, Matthew 5-7. through I hope this gives some indication of the great depths of Matthew's Gospel. We must look for its sources, not only in the Essene mysteries, but also throughout the ancient Hebrew and Greek worlds. Armed with the results of spiritual scientific research, we can truly grasp the depth of religious documents provided by seers and approach them with the sacred respect I mentioned in Munich. We hear seers speaking to us from the depths of time, as it were. They speak in a spiritual language that has been used by great individualities throughout the centuries so that those who choose to hear can hear. As the Gospel says, quote, He who has ears to hear, let him hear, unquote, Matthew 11.15. But just as our physical ears require a great deal of development, much remains to be done to develop our spiritual ears, which allow us to understand these great and mighty spiritual scriptures. Modern spiritual science exists so that we can learn to read spiritual documents. Once we are equipped with a full understanding of the eye and its nature in the kingdom, we will be able to understand the chapter in Matthew that begins, quote, How blessed are the beggars after Christ! For they will discover the kingdoms of heaven through the power of the individual eye. Unquote. Matthew 5.3 Ancient initiates would have told us that we seek the kingdoms of heaven in vain as long as we look for them in the individual eye. But Christ Jesus said that in times to come, if we seek the kingdoms of heaven, we will indeed be able to discover the spirit of the individual eye. The purpose of the Christ's appearance was to bring the profound secrets of the mysteries into the outer world. Tomorrow, when we consider this historic event from this same perspective in greater detail, you will learn the true meaning of the Beatitudes. 
End of Lecture 8, given in Bern, September 8, 1920.